Today, we are here with Adela Garcia, former president of the Our Lady of Guadalupe Catholic Youth Organization and leader of the Our Lady of Guadalupe Church Pillar Committee. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your past and current involvement in the community? Hi there. Good morning. Yes, uh, I have been involved with uh, with the San Diego community since I was a teenager. I lived in Logan Heights. I am an immigrant to the United States that came here at the age of five years old and uh, have lived in Barrio Logan for most of my life and uh, attended Our Lady of Guadalupe uh, Church. In fact, I still do from my house here in the South Bay. But uh, I have never really stopped uh, my service to the community. It started there at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church and through the years uh, I have participated on numerous boards. Um, I'm currently the the chair of the Latina Success Leadership Program for Mana de San Diego, a women's organization, and uh, and just believe that uh, in order to have a better life for ourselves and for our people around us, that we all need to pitch in and do what we can. So I don't do it in large chunks like a lot of people, but the things that I do do are meaningful, and that's why when I was approached to see if we wanted to participate in the pillar community, knowing what I know about the influence of the church and of the leaders that have emerged from this church, I said, we absolutely have to be there. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the origin story of Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, as far as you know, and what role it serves in the Barrio Logan community? Well, Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, when it was formed, and it's over 100 years old. In fact, I'm not real sure exactly how many, but I know it's over 100 years old. We celebrated it a couple of years ago. But uh, it, it at one time was a national parish. There were only, um, there were a lot of uh, Mexicans that were here and Mexicans that had come up from Mexico because of the Cristero movement and so forth. And, uh, and they formed a national parish. And that national parish allowed the masses to be said in Spanish. Uh, all the other churches were in English. So this quickly became the hub of the Mexican-American community as we knew it. And uh, even today, um, it still has, most of the masses are in Spanish. It has a very uh, wide support uh, in terms of, of the people that, that uh, attended and helped it to stay vibrant. And it's just, uh, it's a center of the community. But what a lot of people don't know is that it isn't just a place where you pray. It's also been a place where uh, there has been activism to support things that were not right for the community that that uh, happened. Um, a lot of people don't know that at one time, uh, Barrio Logan was uh, really just a beautiful, uh, beautiful Mexican-American community. It was huge with just a huge Latino base. And then because of an inability on our part to participate, to understand laws and to have people at the table, they not only put a freeway system through the center of the community that ripped it apart, but they displaced hundreds of families in that effort. And then to boot, they made rezoning uh, changes that took it from being a community organist, uh, a residential area that the community would live in to one of zoning of commercial. And it brought in the junkyards and all this other stuff that even today has has not been completely taken away. There, there's still a lot of problems with pollution. But I think the the reason that I love going to this church is because it's run by the Jesuits. And if you know by anything about the Jesuit order, they are social justice advocates. 
And the greatest one of all was my mentor and the founder of the Our Lady of Guadalupe CYO that came about in the early, well, late 1960s and 1969, uh, was Father Brown and Father Rizura, who had been here. Uh, prior to them, Father Silva, that uh, that a lot of people remember, was the pastor. But Father Brown, um, he really invested in the in the youth of the parish. I mean, they were they were not going to church. We were not going to church. I mean, I had to go, but I wasn't really going. You know, I mean, I attended, but I wasn't involved. And uh, and and what he did was he brought a sense of of the community and the need, and trained a whole bunch of us. Uh, you know, I look at the the kids that uh, came out of the Catholic Youth Organization, of which I have the great privilege of being president under under Father Brown. And these people, like myself, had landed in great jobs, have done great, continued to do things. And what we all have in common is the sense of, of social justice. And so most people think of the church as only being the place of prayer. But if you take a look at our Lady of Guadalupe Church, it isn't just where you pray. I mean, that's also a place where you're gathering information about what you need to do to improve the lives of yourselves and others and, and work together toward that. And so I, I love that about our, our parish. Um, what are some of the most important struggles your organization has faced over the years? Well, as I mentioned, they ripped an organization apart. That's like taking San Diego as a whole and then just cutting it in half in creating this barrier and then the displacement of families. I don't know how your family is, but my family is about 50 people. That's my immediate, by the way. <laughs> so when we get together, um, it's it's really, we help each other. When all of a sudden your tia lived over here, your tios lived there, your grandparents lived there, and all of a sudden you're all asked to move to different parts, you know, um, you, you weren't given the option. You were told you had to. It was imminent domain. A lot of people don't even know what that means. But it's when they come in and they just declare that you have to you have to leave. And so the displacement of families, I think, was very, very uh, awful. And then what also happened is the, the movement of all that industrial stuff that came in, the junkyards and all that, that really polluted the neighborhood and made it less attractive. You know, when I was growing up, we had a store, we had a theater, we had, uh, you know, uh, the neighborhood house was the central place that a lot of us would, would go to. There were different things. You didn't have to go get in your car and drive anywhere because your community there had everything. When that has been blown apart, you find that it's like, uh, you know, a displacement of people and trying to find your way across that and trying to build the same relationships, even just the the hardship. Uh, a lot of people were poor. They didn't have the transportation. All of a sudden now, you know, they're having to find ways to get to their jobs, ways that are, that are not as attractive. And so I, I think that for me, the understanding of the community and how it changed and how resilient the church was, because even though we lost so many families that could have literally shut down the church, it's still around. Our little school, Our Lady of Guadalupe School, it started as Our Lady of Guadalupe School and Our Lady of Angels School. They found that they were that they were suffering. Their enrollments, which had been humongous, and they used to turn away students, all of a sudden they couldn't fill the schools. So they ended up merging together so that you could have one school. It's on two campuses, the North Campus, which is at Our Lady of Angels in that area, and then the South Campus, which is at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. Why? 
because we wanted to continue to have a Catholic education for the children. Why does that matter? Guess what? The highest achievement rates in graduation are coming from those kids. It's one of the poorest uh, schools in terms of, you know, you're not going to have the field hockey team playing, you know, the national things. But in terms of kids that have gone through it and what they learn out of it and how they how they help the community, because I can tell you, I can name leaders like Irma Castro, who was one of the early founders of the Chicano Federation and, you know, did a ton of stuff. Um, you know, Richard Ibarra, oh, my God, his whole family, you know, his mother. And then the, the people that were that were in the organizations whose children now have come out of it to continue to carry the torch as elected officials or serving on commissions. That's why I think that the uh, the church continues to stay relevant. That's why it needs to continue, because it isn't just, you know, the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers. Those are there for sure, because I'm grounded on on something very much bigger than myself. But there's also this incredible awareness of the uh, responsibility that you all have, that we all have, to try to make it better for other people. What story did you hope to tell after you helped create the Our Lady of Guadalupe Church Pillar? I wanted... And I say I because I'm talking for our little committee, okay? Mm -hmm. My little committee was Connie Zuniga, who knows more about the history of the church than I think even the priests that are there today. Mm -hmm. uh, Connie Zuniga, you know, Danny Montano, and, and the, you know, just our, our little committee that uh, just got together and said, what is it that people need to know, right? And certainly when you see the face of Father Brown and Father Rosero, because between Father Brown and Father Rosero, they must have baptized over 20,000 kids. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I think that when you look at at their, um, the way that they integrated into the community, into the Chicano community, you know, it wasn't just like the church is over here and the community is over here. No, especially during the time when Father arrived, that was at the height of the Chicano movement. There were a lot of people there terrified. Oh, who are these Chicanos and all that? When he understood what they were fighting for, he joined forces with them. He's never been afraid to walk among the people. I mean, he, he's he gone now, but even though he's gone, his presence is still felt. And, and the reason that it's felt is because he, even though he wasn't born or raised or isn't even a Latino, he was a gringo that was just he fell in love with our culture and our people and served us for close to 50 years. Um, I think that what you get out of that is this sense of, of love that is there for the community, a sense of, well, this, this community deserves to be here and to continue to be supported. And when we started the, the pillar committee, uh, it was, it was really important that we have that, uh, that face of what he really accomplished. So you see, the lowriders there. A lot of people don't realize now, in fact, there's legislation right now at the state level, right on the lowriders, you know, to make it so that it's not a crime, you know, but even before all of that, he was, he was there embracing these guys, giving them a place to, to hold their meetings. In fact, let me just tell you, the car clubs were very important because they, they really were organized groups, right? And when father got there, the head of the parish council, which was an important position that they brought out in the church, was Jorge Maruquin, who was 
the leader of the Masters Car Club. The head of the CYO, the person that I followed, was a guy named Carlos Lopez, who was the leader of the Baja Kings Car Club. So he wasn't afraid to groom people, to bring them in, to learn from them, and to, to work with them. And in this understanding of the importance of Chicano Park, so that it wasn't just a park with the pretty murals, but that when you went there, you looked at it and you said, what are these murals? What are they, people that drew, what are they telling us? Because people go there, oh, they're really pretty. But when you start to pay attention to the message on each one of those pillars, it's the history of what we've had and the need to continue. And they got that. Father Rosura and Father Brown got that. So for us to be able to, to have that and to be able to be able to create this pillar that that participated along with the other groups, the the danza, the you know the uh, the educators that came in, the car clubs, you know there were numerous groups that came, um, the musicians, all of these groups that came together with with pillars. And the reason that our little team and I was so privileged that we were given an opportunity to participate was because we're part of the story. We're we're the fabric. And so we aren't there just in passing. We're not here uh, once in a while. We're there all the time. And we still have people that have strong voices that can call things together, that want to support the community, want to see it improve, and want it to be there for other generations. So many in our community have suffered racism and trauma in their lives. In what way might you see your pillar providing a bridge towards healing? Well, you know, when Mario Lopez, who was on our committee, um, he was the the brains behind how, how that pillar uh, got created. We had all the thoughts and the things, but if you just look and stare at the pillar and you see that at the core of it is this sense of community that says I belong, and that this is where this is where most people um, you you start to identify, you start to care. You start to, to say, be inquisitive. You want to teach your children about this. It isn't just, to me, a piece of art. It's a history. It's a historical piece. And I was so pleased that Mario, who had been with us on numerous things, when we asked him if he would help us on the Pillar Committee, he, you know, he's a master graphic artist, and he knows this stuff better than anybody. He immediately said, hey, Della, I'm on. And and. When you see somebody that has that talent pull all these pieces that come from little little pictures and things, pull it together in a story, uh, you can just walk around and you start to see, oh, I remember this, I remember that, or yes, I know this. And you start to value. Uh, a lot of people think that when things are old, they're not as valuable. I beg to differ. I think they become even more valuable because they're a lesson in history and you don't want some of the things that, that we dealt with in the barrio to continue. You know, we want to be able to take people like yourselves and others that are younger. Have you educated? Have you enthusiastic about what you're doing so that you can do a better job and take people like me who have been around the block a few times and say, let's join together. What can I learn from you and what can I help you with so that we continue to improve our community because there's still a ton of need. It, it isn't uh, something that we're, we can sit back and say, oh, it's not perfect. No, it's not. 
there is a considerable amount of needs. You don't need to look at demographic information and the where the jobs are, who's filling those jobs with the educational level. A lot of the same problems that existed when Father Brown first arrived are still there. And, uh, you know, we, we have to continue to work as a community. That's all. So I think this inviting you to participate, to learn and to participate and to throw your little kernel of sand into the into the pit. I think that's the the welcoming part that that really needs to continue to be there and and I know is there and people are working hard to make sure it remains there. What does the new Chicana Park Museum represent for you? Oh my gosh. Well, it represents a lot. And I'll tell you why. I would like every young person to Google the Chicano movement. I would like every person to understand what came from the Chicano movement because the Chicano Museum was created to capture the sense of what was happening and also to give us an opportunity to continue to be educated and address and enthusiastically help our community. But a lot of people don't realize that when you take a look at this stuff and you see it, that they were fighting for schools that had less than good teachers, you know, the schools themselves were, you know, were not the best. You're not going to get air conditioning and, you know, and all that. I mean, it was, there, there were a lot of problems with, with the community. Uh, people were not being encouraged to go to college. I mean, we were being railroaded into go to clerical classes, or if you're a guy, go to mechanical training, you know, woodshop or mechanical, you know, that was, that was the norm. Most kids today, you know, I know with my daughter, from the time she was in my womb, man, she was she was going to college. And I did everything that I could within my power to make that happen for her. But there's a lot of people that still don't have the means, don't have the understanding of the difference that it makes to have an educated uh, family and educated workforce. And then to encourage young people to serve, you know, to be those voices that we need to have so that there is an understanding that we're not at end of job, that there's still problems, and to encourage that and support that. So to me, that's that's what I hope continues because when you unmask history and you really look at it in, in a way that you connect with what it's trying to teach you, there is tremendous value. You have the choice of either doing something about it or just looking at it like it's a pretty piece. And that's your choice. But for the most part, when you go to the Chicago Museum, and especially when you see the pillars and you see the pride, you know, you say, why, why, why did this come about? Well, to embrace your culture. You know, there was a time when my mother-in-law, poor thing, she, if she spoke Spanish, they would get hit. And they would not allow it. So consequently, what happened? My husband and all her kids never learned Spanish correctly. They learn it like a lot of us, bochismo, which I think is okay now. But they can't compete for jobs on a, on a global stage with bochismo. They have to invest in getting the Spanish up to a certain level. Why? It wasn't because my mother-in-law wasn't proud to be Mexican. She was very proud, but we had people making decisions that were saying, you cannot speak Spanish. You have to, you're in this country now. You can only do this. And so they didn't recognize what other global uh, countries recognize, that it's an asset to be multicultural, multilingual. And, and so for our kids, for them to see that there was this effort 
to change things, to not keep them down, but to help them. And that there was a group of people and through their art, through their art, they were drawing those pictures and they were drawing those, those things that people needed to open their eyes to. I think that's the beauty of what the museum, and I know that um, there's enthusiasm about what else can be done in efforts to get it to the next level in terms of how to even make it more valuable. Because it, it can't just be about looking in a rear view mirror at history. It has to be about looking forward and, and using that wonderful space to give pride to people, to encourage people, and to tell new stories. That's that's the thing that's exciting. In what ways do you think we can, can continue to educate future generations on the importance of community advocacy and reciprocity? Well, I think that uh, the first thing that we can do is there should be the, there should be an effort at every school to teach children to to really connect with the community to be able to offer things that that will help the child to uh let me give you an example today they're going to uh be at the city council and they're going to rename Beardsley Street they're going to add Father Brown's name to it and we're going to have a big celebration toward that in in uh, the first week in October over at Our Lady Guadalupe Church but to me you know what would be valuable take some of those children to go see what a city council meeting looks like, to have them witness what how governments work and to make them feel that they belong. So to me, this ability from, from us as adults to support, whether it be if there's some little organization that's helping the children to do stuff, if, you know, like we do a giveaway of food at the church. And so, you know, I, I took my grandson when they started this thing, it was during the pandemic, to go with me to donate the fruit. And, he, you know, he didn't have a problem with fruit, but there were people that were. And when, when I took him, I was very happy because he felt proud. And I told him, I said, you always need to help. And see, those little grains of things, whether you do it with some little girls group or even just talking to a little girls group. You know, if there's some teacher that wants you to come in and spend five minutes to be a role model, don't be afraid. Do it. And if there's an ability for you financially to provide support so that they can get additional things, like I know the museum could go way over in terms of its ideas and all that. It's going to take money. Can support the museum. You know, donate to it so that it can continue to thrive and grow. That's the way things happen.